from IBM Cloud and Cognitive Software, you're listening to The Art of Automation with host Jerry Cuomo. Folks, today we tell the story of Java, a story that began somewhat secretly in the early 90s at Sun Microsystems. And little did anyone know that the programming language that Sun had created would inspire a worldwide community and become the platform for an enduring software development ecosystem of languages, runtime platforms, open source projects, and lots and lots of development tools. So after a few years of secret development led by James Gosling, Sun released the landmark Write Once, Run Anywhere Java platform in 1995 refocusing it beyond its original design for interactive televisions to applications for the new World Wide Web. Today, millions of developers program in Java. Java applications are everywhere, from the Mars Rover controller, Wikipedia search engine, and the popular game Minecraft, all written in Java. And there are thousands and thousands of enterprise applications powering a who's who list of companies of all sizes. Simply put, the enterprise world is built on Java. Today's episode is about Java and automation. You're going to hear from today's guest that Java applications are ready to be transformed to this generation. With cloud and AI at its side, Java both powers automation technology and benefits from automation and AI technology to help developers bring forward the code that is powering our industry. So today's guest is my friend and colleague of close to 20 years, Ian Robinson. Ian is an IBM Distinguished Engineer and CTO of IBM Application Platforms. Ian is a founding father of the popular WebSphere application platform, which is powered by Java. And while Ian stands as one of the top software architects that I've ever had the pleasure of working with, Ian's formal training is in physics, where he's earned his PhD some years ago. But today, he's all about transforming enterprises to the cloud using modern application programming tools, most notably Java. And with that, I want to welcome Ian to the Art of Automation. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Oh, no. Great to have you. If you don't mind, let's jump right in. We have a lot to talk about here. Let's start off with the why. Why is Java so important to enterprise? I'm going to ask a bold question. Imagine life without the internet as we know it today. I don't think the internet that we know it today would have existed without Java. If you think back to the 90s before we had it, I can remember what life was like before we Mm -hmm. had the internet and the World Wide Web. When when it first started out in the mid-90s, I think it was a bit like the best ever road network before the invention of cars. Right. (laughs) So, so, So it was great for cyclists and people that wanted to get out there, but it hadn't really changed the world. And the thing, in my opinion, that made the internet and the World Wide Web change the world was when business got interested. The reason business got interested, obviously, was because it presented a huge opportunity to transform everything we were doing back then into a new digital channel. But how did you connect the ability for an unconstrained amount of workload to be able to access all of that data that the enterprises had locked up? It was far, I mean, it just didn't scale when you just had a couple of web servers in front of your, you know, your traditional enterprise systems and a couple of CGI scripts. 
What made it all work was the middle tier. And what ran on the middle tier was Java. So Java was the thing that connected all the backend systems to build the new services, the new internet applications that you needed to take what were previously internal backend systems and run business logic between them and the people that were going to consume it and turn it into a form that people with browsers actually found engaging to use. And okay, you know, so the middle tier, that, that's it. Where's Java fit into the middle right. tier? So the reason Java became the choice or the primary choice for the middle tier was because at around about the same time as all this was going on, Java, Java was born at the same time as the internet. And companies like Sun and IBM, Oracle and others recognized the value of Java as a technology that you could build a middle tier platform around. So we got together and defined an enterprise platform written for Java applications. I mean, so around about 1999, that was when things like Java Enterprise Edition, J2EE, were born. And platforms mm -hmm. like WebSphere and WebLogic and, and later JBoss and others came along and, and really colonized that middle tier and, and made the internet what it is today. I know Java popularity today is still in the top two or three when you look at studies, but mm -hmm. when you look at impact on an enterprise, I mean, how do you put it on a scale and weigh its importance? So, so Java has been in the top two or three programming languages ever since it became a thing. It's, I think it's number three at the moment after, uh, after Python and C. But, you know, there are somewhere between 10 and 12 million Java developers around the world. Mm. So the, one, one of the reasons Java remains relevant for the cloud today is because there are so many applications and so much skill, so many libraries, so much capability that enterprise applications actually need are available in Java for Java developers. And that's where a lot of the enterprise skill is. And Ian, can you just give us like a metric? Take a big bank. What sorts of numbers are we talking about here? Numbers of applications on average? Well, so the, the big banks that I work with typically have hundreds of Java applications. Some of them have thousands, but it, it's wow. not necessarily just the number of Java applications that right. they have. It's the scale to which they deploy them. So hundreds of applications deployed in you know, management systems where there are thousands of instances of those Java applications running. So it's not just the scale of the, the simple number of applications. It's how many instances of those run, how many transactions a second those applications are actually processing. And I assume if they're taking on the workload of that many transactions per second, they must be doing something pretty important to that They must be doing something pretty important for that institution. And those applications are running predominantly in virtual machines today, but increasingly in containers where Java is still a very popular way to run those workloads. All right, Ian. So now this is the Art of Automation podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the connection between Java and automation. There's both a microscopic and a macroscopic way to look at that. When most people think about the relationship between Java and automation, the microscopic aspect is the one that, that tends to come to mind first. So, you know, the, the way in which, particularly in a cloud environment, continuous integration, continuous delivery pipelines automate the process between creating or updating an application 
and it actually running live. So, you know, when somebody makes a change, seeing that change automated all the way through the delivery process into production, whilst I think that's what a lot of people think about when it comes to Java automation, I think the more interesting side of things is some of the macroscopic considerations. When we asked our WebSphere customers, if you could choose one thing for us to automate to make your world easier, what would it be? The answer that came back was somewhat surprising, but it was automating the management of their Java stack security posture. So it's, you know, the the sorts of things that operations teams have to do day in, day out that doesn't relate directly to the business use of those applications or even the innovation that they want to deliver themselves. It's just that the stuff that gets in the way that, you know, an operations team, for example, will be subscribed yeah. to security bulletins. And I have thousands of instances of their applications running at different levels, different workloads on each instance. I'm trying to reconcile what security vulnerabilities might be uh, be affecting each one of those instances, what fixes are available, which of yeah. those instances those have been applied to, which they still need to come to. You know, we, we see customers with big spreadsheets to manage all of this stuff. Oh boy. So automating that process was their biggest task. And that's something that we did this year. Yeah, I was um, going to ask. I was say, okay, you yeah. heard from them. What did you yeah. do about it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we gathered examples of how a number of customers actually managed that process themselves and distilled it down into an automated process that, that we built into our, our new WebSphere automation offering. Okay. So now let's bring in AI into the mix. So let's talk about the connection of the trifecta of Java, automation, and AI. What's the relevance and where do you see things going? Is AI capable of helping to propel Java into the future? Yeah, and I think it is that way around as well. So I I think that Java is a technology that AI can be applied to rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. I think of two different types of use cases. I don't like to think of development and operations as completely separate functions, but they do drive different use cases for applying AI to Java. So from an operations perspective, for example, we're using AI to make it much simpler to create machine learning models of Java applications deployed to WebSphere that can recognize anomalous behavior. So, you know, if an application which is running day in, day out, processing millions of transactions a day, starts to do something different from one moment to the next, something unexpected, then the ability to be able to catch something like that easily by recognizing that this isn't normal behavior, that you've strayed from the path that you're normally on, can give an operations team heads up to either have an automated process trigger to perhaps investigate the situation further or, or to take some action before that application goes south. So some AI ops, but with a specific Java machine learning. That's right. So for example, if you've got a steady workload that's running and we recognize that Java runs a bit of memory is consumed, it's put on the heap, some garbage collection occurs. If we notice that the amount of memory that's being used after garbage collection has suddenly started to go up, even though the workload hasn't increased, What are you going to do about that? So you might be trending towards a memory leak. 
Well, so one of the things that we're doing about that is recognizing that that's anomalous behavior and starting to do some things in the background that might come in useful in the future. Take a heat dump, analyze the heat dump, see if there is an object that is leaking, recognize where that object is being leaked and take a stack trace and see what line of code is actually adding that object to a collection and potentially being Makes responsible. Sense. So that, that, that's an operational example of applying AI and machine learning to recognize anomalous behavior and execution. From a development perspective, we're also using it to help developers break down monolithic applications into smaller microservices to increase the agility of those applications. It's really easy to take a monolithic application, move it from a virtual machine stick that in a container and run it on a cloud platform and benefit from some cloud operations efficiencies. It's much harder, though, to take that monolithic application that you've put in the container and get additional agility out of it, because to do that, you've got to break it down into smaller microservices. And that's a much harder problem to solve. So we're using AI to inspect that running application and actually make recommendations about where the sort of the natural seams are in the business flows that are executing through that monolithic application and actually suggest to developers where they might choose to break that into smaller microservices. Is there a specific tool? I know there is one, but I'm yeah, kind yeah. of asking you to, to tell us a little bit about about uh, one of the, yes. one of your new toys. So, so, so one of the things we've been working on over the last eighteen months or so, really, with IBM Research, is a tool that we've we've actually productized, shipped it now as along with WebSphere. It's called Mono to Micro. It does it does what the name suggests, and it analyzes running applications. It recognizes where the, as I said, the natural seams might be, to use a sort of a geological term, the natural seams in that application. It suggests to the developer that's running the application where they might like to try to break that application down into smaller parts. And it will generate separate microservice projects for those different parts and give that developer a head start for breaking that application down. One of the things that's really quite cool about it is that code that it generates will continue to run the same business logic that it was running before, just separated down into separate component pieces. So all of the original test cases continue to execute. It doesn't give you independently scalable microservices straight off the bat, but it does give you independent services that you can then start to tease apart and helps to transform that application, you know, strangle parts of that application and break it down ultimately into a more microservices-like architecture. So Ian, can you give us some examples? What's the future state look like here? Okay, so I think there are a couple of different parts to that. So first of all, for the health of Java as a technology itself, I think the future for Java has never looked brighter. One of my proudest moments at IBM was announcing at Java One in 2017 that we'd open sourced our IBM J9 Java virtual machine and our Liberty runtime. So Java has been open source for a long time. OpenJDK was open source before that, of course. There are now more ways and more places to get Java from than there ever has been before. For the last few years, 
Java vendors have been working together in a, in a consortium called Adopt Open JDK mm-hmm. to produce builds and distributions of Java for free. That was so successful that it, it, it outgrew its, its ability to be able to run itself as an independent consortium and, and move to the Eclipse Foundation at mm-hmm. the end of last year. So the Eclipse Adoptium project is now a gathering point of Java distributions. And the IBM distribution of Java, we've rebranded that as IBM Semaru. So IBM Semaru is, is something that we've been distributing from IBM since, since the summer this year. The Eclipse Foundation themselves are producing a build of Java called Temarin. In the near future, there'll be an Eclipse marketplace where distributions from IBM, like Semaru, from the Eclipse Foundation, like Temarin, from other folks, from, from Red Hat, from Microsoft, they'll all be gathered together and made available by the Eclipse Adoptium marketplace. So the ability to get hold of Java has never been greater than it is at the moment. But there are other things that are going on just from a technology level as well. So containers provide a particular challenge for Java. So some of the things that we've been doing specifically to make Java more efficient in containers is technology and innovation that we've been building specifically into the OpenJ9 JVM that we distribute as part of the IBM Semaru runtimes, which, by the way, is the Java that all of our WebSphere offerings run on. So, for example, containers are very different from virtual machines where long-running Java processes run workloads very efficiently. In a container, one of the things that workloads need to be able to do is to start very quickly. Containers, by their very nature, are run and done. So some of the techniques that we use in long-running VMs just don't work in containers. So shared class cache is is an innovation that we've had in OpenJ9 for ages. It enables multiple instances of the JVM to take advantage of previous instances having run. That doesn't translate to containers. Hmm. But we've been building our Java containers with the shared class cache built into the image so that you get that benefit straight away when you start the container up. And in fact, we've we've evolved our shared class cache technology so that it recognizes Docker layers now, so that each different layer in the Docker image has its own shared class cache. We've actually started to essentially turn the Java virtual machine itself into a microservices architecture by splitting the JIT out as its own separate microservice so that Java containers now reach out to a JIT service to actually do the just-in-time compilation. So, you know, the future of Java in containers is, I mean, not only is it a source of innovation, it's also enabling Java to actively evolve into the the next generation of its life. I just learned like five things just now about (laughs) what we're doing. So this is wonderful. Thank you, Ian, very much. Thanks, Jerry. And ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Art of Automation with guest Ian Robinson. IBM DE, and Enterprise Java Application Master. So it sounds to me that while there is much choice in today's market in how one builds their cloud-oriented enterprise applications, Java is still very much a choice. And for companies looking to move Java forward, there are many options, like what Ian explained in Monoto Micro, which uses AI and automation technology to take your existing Java applications to a more modern cloud-native architecture. Well, that's it for today. In fact, I'll include a few links of the material that Ian referred to in the description section of this podcast. 
And thanks again, everyone, for listening in. This is Jerry Cuomo, IBM Fellow and Chief Technology Officer of Automation at IBM. See you again on an upcoming episode. Mm.